0: Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 3, Episode 2, How It All Began, Part 2, Common for Whom. In our previous episode, the season opener, we took on the surprisingly difficult task of establishing just when it was that true public education in the United States began, Depending on your precise definition of just how universal, how public, or what kind of education it was, there were a bunch of contending candidates, from the founding of certain schools, to Puritan religious laws, to Thomas Jefferson, to Noah Webster, all of which kept ping-ponging back and forth between education that was universal versus only for elites, and education designed to promote critical thinking versus obedience and compliance. At the end of our previous episode, we had just reached the mid-19th century. There are a lot of public schools scattered about the nation, especially in the Northeast, but no real system to unify them. And Noah Webster has just spent time shopping his own vision and his best-selling spelling textbook for universal public schooling as a means to bring unity and conformity to the next generation of young Americans. Our episode this week begins with a look at Webster's successors. And one of those successors was a man named Joseph Lancaster, a Quaker from London. Who after briefly running away from home and getting dragged back by the Navy, repented of his wild ways and decided to dedicate his life to being a teacher and education reformer. He came up with what became known as the Lancasterian system, whose philosophy, like Webster's, envisioned school as a means to standardize and systematize what he saw as the haphazard network of dame schools, charity schools, and public schools that currently educated the poor and a core part of that education needed to include something he called developing moral character. It was the first system designed for mass education. In it, students would be seated in rows, subjected to strict discipline, and be both tutored and policed by older students. Good behavior would be rewarded, and bad behavior punished, with such creative means as having wooden logs placed around the necks of recalcitrant students, or even, and I wish I were making this up, getting put in a sack and suspended from the roof of the school to be publicly mocked. The Lancasterian system caught on throughout both England and America, where Lancaster eventually moved after having been imprisoned for debt and then driven out of the educational society he had founded based on accusations of beating students, practicing homosexuality, and apparently deism, or the idea that you can understand God through observing the natural world, which apparently was commensurately criminal with the other two things by the standards of the day. Lancaster moved to Pennsylvania, and by the time he got killed in 1838 in a street accident in New York City, yes, New York traffic was a problem even back then, between 1,200 and 1,500 schools in England, the United States, and South America were said to have adopted the system he created. Yes, South America. Apparently, Lancaster had a very productive meeting with Bolivar, and, well, one thing led to another. This was the system that inspired one of the biggest, most foundational names in the history of American public education. Horace Mann. Mann, along with Henry Barnard, established and forwarded what would become known as the Common School Movement. Horace Mann was a lawyer, Massachusetts state senator, and eventually the first secretary of the first-ever State Board of Education in Massachusetts. He was a lapsed Calvinist with a firm belief in a secular kind of salvation, one which was dependent not on an angry God who promised, and I quote for Mann, a bottomless and seething lake filled with torments and the wailing and agony of its victims, unquote, but on a system of schools that would raise the masses out of poverty and equip them with both the skills and, yes, you'll hear this phrase again, moral character, aka obedience and dedication to work above all other pursuits, to raise their station in life. Through the mechanism of public schools, society, man felt, like a mother, would take care of all its children, and as a result, all of society would be advanced and uplifted. Mann is the person who gave us that phrase about public education as, quote, the great equalizer of the conditions of men. Mann founded and edited a publication called The Common School Journal starting in eighteen thirty eight, where he outlined his six principles for an American public school system. One, the public should no longer remain ignorant, two, a public education should be paid for, controlled, and sustained by an interested public. Three, that this education will be best provided in schools that embrace children from a variety of economic backgrounds four that this education must be non-sectarian he didn't go so far as to say secular for reasons we'll discuss shortly five that this education must be taught using the tenets of a free society and six that education should be provided by well-trained professional teachers man supposedly visited every single school in the state of massachusetts It's kind of hard to confirm that, but let's just say he got around, and used every bit of his considerable influence in the legislature and state bureaucracy to bring his vision of public schooling to fruition. Now, timing is everything. Mann was engaging in this work in the late 1830s and early 1840s at the height of social unrest and rioting over Irish immigration, and his arguments about education as crime prevention touched a chord in many law-and-order type politicians and citizens. Mann's insistence on this education being secular, though, made him enemies among various influential Christian groups, which is why he finally said, okay, fine, public education can be openly Christian so long as it doesn't promote any particular single version of Christianity. I guess if you're truly secular, or Jewish, or Muslim, or something else, you're out of luck, but hey, this was pretty progressive by the standards of the day. It really wasn't until the 1962 Supreme Court case Engel v. Vitale that prayer in public schools was ruled unconstitutional as was the use of the Bible as a school text for prayer purposes, not for secular study, in 1963's Abington School District versus Shemp, under the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. Man's vision was not progressive enough for some during his time, though. Proto-communists, like the Working Man's Party in New York, felt that man's idea of common schools didn't go far enough, that equalizing society required active dismantling of all systems of social class, not just manufacturing a quiescent and obedient underclass, and that to really change things, public schools should actually all be boarding schools where rich and poor children alike would be educated with equal resources and not have to go home to vastly unequal economic circumstances. As you may be able to guess, that vision never came to pass. The issue of man's vision for public schools became a political hot potato between the two major political parties of the day, the Whigs, who, like man, wanted top-down, standardized public education for all to lift the moral and economic fate of the masses, And the democrats who liked the idea of public schools but saw them the way jefferson did as a bulwark against centralized government control and as a result wanted them to remain independent every school its own little island man ever the savvy politician aimed for the middle in the course of the common school movement towns and districts took on the responsibility for setting school curriculum policy rather than either the schools themselves or the state and federal government And this, in fact, is the governance system that, more or less, American public schools still operate under today. Another contemporary feature of public schooling that Mann introduced was placing students in different grades by age, regardless of aptitude or academic readiness. Prior to this point, many schools operated in the style of one-room schoolhouses, where students of all ages were educated together and pursued work appropriate to what they were ready for. Again, this is a major feature of what we now call competency-based instruction and differentiated instruction, two approaches that are still practiced by only a minority of schools today and considered radically progressive, even though they're in the original DNA of American schooling. That's how powerful man's little mutation of schooling became, that we still today consider, in the words of Ken Robinson, that the most important thing that students have in common is their date of manufacture, unquote. So why did man make this change? Well, in 1843, man had toured Europe on his own dime and fell in love with the Prussian system of schooling. Which, among other things, had this whole age equals grade model. The Prussian model, as it's called in the US, or the Humboldtian educational ideal, as it's called in Germany, at least in English translation, set forth the idea not only of age-based grades, but also of compulsory attendance, a longer school year, standardized testing, formalized training for teachers, schools specifically as preparation for university study, and academic freedom for school faculty. Wilhelm von Humboldt came up with this model in 1809 as a reaction to Prussia's defeat by Napoleonic France, as a way for Germany to get with the times and modern itself up, becoming an academic powerhouse. The system was actually a key component of the emergent movement for unified German nationalism among the various German statelets in the Confederacy, and man saw similar potential for a commonly shared public education to unify what he saw as America's own fractious population. Mann continued to publish journals and various annual reports and make speeches and eventually did get a somewhat standardized curriculum into Massachusetts schools, even as Henry Barnard, his counterpart in Rhode Island, did the same. Thanks to their influence, the McGuffey Reader became the new most popular school text. These were textbooks designed by William Holmes McGuffey, who was said to have been teaching in school since age 14. They were the first texts designed to be increasingly challenging by volume, They emphasized reading skills, phonics, and mathematics, and promoted pedagogical innovations like read-alouds, sounding out words, repetition for mastery, learning vocabulary not in isolation but in context through stories, and asking reading comprehension questions after those stories. The McGuffey Reader became one of only two books in its era to compete with the Bible for sheer sales. The other, of course, was, too late to make him any money off it, Webster's Dictionary. Between the 1840s and 1900, the common schools movement forwarded by Mann and Barnard had spread to dozens of states and territories, bringing the closest thing to uniformity that America's increasingly popular but still widely divergent set of public schools ever had. In 1852, Massachusetts finally became the first state to make public education compulsory, followed by Washington, D.C. in 1864 and Vermont in 1867 and a whole bunch of other states in the 1870s and onward from there. The southern states were the last to go with mississippi being the last of all in 1918 unless you count the then territory of alaska which waited until 1929. weirdly some of the biggest support for public schools in the south came from the Ku klux klan who saw state-provided education as a counterbalance against what they saw as the threat of catholicism spreading via catholic schools however the 1925 supreme court case pierce v. society of sisters ruled that families did have the right to seek a religious or otherwise private education for their children if they so chose. Now, the federal government looked at this trend of compulsory education across the states and wanted in on it. Yet the Smith-Towner Bill, the first to propose a National Department of Education, failed, and would not become a reality until my lifetime in 1979. So, should we count 1918 or maybe even 1929 as the actual origin of universal public education in the United States? Maybe not. Because remember, so far, we've still only been talking about public education for white people. When did African Americans get to join this grand enterprise of public schooling? Let's scroll back now and remember, as late as the eve of the Civil War in 1860, almost 90% of African Americans were enslaved, and formal education was forbidden to them. In fact, several states had laws with severe punishments for white people who attempted to educate slaves. As for free blacks, well, they had been trying to get in on this public school phenomenon since at least 1782, when freed slave-turned-abolitionist leader Prince Hall led protests in Boston. Hall had previously campaigned for the inclusion of black soldiers in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. His petition was first denied and then later hastily accepted once General Washington and company saw blacks flocking instead to the British Army, where they were allowed to serve and, in fact, promised an end to slavery if they did. Hall wound up serving in the Continental Army himself, although records aren't clear in exactly what capacity. And, spoilers, the American revolutionaries won and decided to keep on enslaving black people for the next 80-some-odd years. Anyway, Hall's post-war crusade was to get African Americans into public schools, on the pretty reasonable grounds that they paid taxes that supported those schools too, and therefore shouldn't their children be able to attend. Well, logic proving no match for racism, The Massachusetts legislature struck down not one, but two bills Prince proposed, and finally he decided to start his own school for free black children operating out of his own home. This began a tradition of private institutions, some started by African Americans themselves and others by white abolitionists of one creed or another, that educated black students. In 1798, African Americans in Boston organized and built the Abiel Smith School, named after the white philanthropist who bankrolled it. Remember that name, Abiel Smith. We'll come back to it. In 1820, the city of Boston used public tax monies to fund two all-black schools. As far as I could find, the earliest recorded African-American public school student who attended alongside white students was a girl named Carolyn Van Vronker, who attended Lowell High School in 1843. But before that, Canaan, New Hampshire's Noyes Academy in 1835 was, I believe, the first, or possibly second, private school to enroll an integrated class of students. 28 white and 14 black in its inaugural and, as it turned out, only year. The white students were generally from local families, but many of the black students had come from as far away as Philadelphia to attend and lived with local white host families in order to do so. Noise Academy opened on March 3rd, and despite this being both a northern state and a hotbed of abolitionism, nearby Dartmouth College, perhaps attempting to atone for its role in Native American cultural genocide, became the first New England college to admit blacks. The first college of all in the United States to do so, incidentally, was the Oneida Institute in Whitesboro, New York. It seemed that the good white folks of New Hampshire fell into a general panic at the idea of, and I quote, inundating the industrious town with paupers and vagabonds and other tales too indecent and too ridiculous to be repeated, unquote, despite no evidence of this mob of paupers and vagabonds actually existing, much less menacing the white citizens of town. New Caden citizens voted five months into Noyes Academy's first year to remove the school. And by remove, I mean literally remove. On August 10th, a small army of 500 white men used 100 oxen to actually tear the school off its foundation, and then, for good measure, fired cannons, cannons, mind you, the most powerful weapons of mass destruction at the time, into the homes where African-American students were boarding. Defenders of the school found some guns to return fire, holding off the mob until the black students could skip town, and amazingly, no one was killed. But the noise incident was cited as a reason if schools needed to be segregated by race in the 1849 Massachusetts Supreme Court case where Benjamin F. Roberts, an African-American man, attempted to enroll his five-year-old daughter Sarah in an all-white public school because the school she was attending, none other than the Abiel Smith School, if you recall from a few minutes ago, was too far from her home. Several white schools were closer, but they denied her admittance, and one actually had staff physically remove her from the premises. Roberts filed suit on behalf of his daughter, and by the time his case reached the Massachusetts Supreme Court in Roberts v. Boston, was represented by legal powerhouses Charles Sumner and Robert Morris. Sumner, you might recall, is that senator whose opposition to slavery got him beaten nearly to death on the Senate floor by South Carolina Senator Andrew Butler. And there are a zillion things today, including a major tunnel named after Sumner in Boston. Morris, from Salem, Massachusetts, was the first black male lawyer to file a lawsuit in the United States, and also the first to win a lawsuit. Morris had made some amazing speeches during this trial, including this one. It is very hard to retain self-respect if we see ourselves set apart and avoided as a degraded race by others. Do not say to our children that, however well behaved, their very presence in a public school is a contamination to your children. Unquote. Unfortunately, the judge Lemuel Shaw had 13 years earlier ruled in Commonwealth v. Aves that slaves being transported through Massachusetts were not to be considered free, but merely sojourners. Hence, the origin of the name that black abolitionist legend Isabella Bell Bomfrey took on, Sojourner Truth. So it wasn't surprising that Shaw ruled that the state constitution of Massachusetts allowed public schools to be segregated by race. So, yes, the same state to create the first public schools was also the first state to enshrine the legality of segregated public schools. Massachusetts, y'all, not some southern state. The later Supreme Court case, Plessy v. Ferguson, and the whole separate but equal BS that case established rested heavily on the Roberts v. City of Boston decision as precedent. This was, shall we say, not Massachusetts's finest hour. While integrated public schools still cropped up here and there, the vast majority remained segregated, either directly by law, as in the South, or by more indirect laws and methods like redlining and restrictive covenants in the North. It wasn't until the Brown v. Board of Education decision in 1954 that segregated schools were declared to be inherently inferior to, quote, regular public schools for white people. And the decision to finally integrate public education for all children technically marked the beginning of true, universally accessible, mandated public education in the United States, even though in practice schools are as segregated now as they were in 1968. And I have a whole episode, Season 2, Episode 7, about why that is and why it continues to be the case. But yes, 1954, technically the beginning of public education for every single kid in America. Uh, Unless you count non-English speakers, whose rights to a public education they could actually understand wouldn't be enshrined until the Equal Opportunity and Education Act of 1972. Or children with significant special needs who could just be shunted off into a room somewhere until the passage of the Education for the Handicapped Children Act in 1975, which really didn't have its full teeth until 1990, when it became the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. So, okay, 1990 the birth of true universal public education in the United States. Maybe. I think it still depends on how you define that. You can very well argue, as Jonathan Kozal and many others do, that the, quote, savage inequalities that create such wildly different levels of resources for rich and poor towns, for white and many students of color, constitute two or more separate and highly unequal experiences, if not formal systems of public education. There have also been calls since the early 1980s, and especially since the appointment of Betsy DeVos as Secretary of Education, to increasingly replace so-called failing public schools with privately run alternatives. Whether public education will continue to progress towards the vision of folks like Jefferson and Webster and Mann and Prince as an all-encompassing, equalizing institution, or move in the other direction, back toward the independently funded, more exclusive institutions that schools were prior to the last 400 years, is still up for grabs as is whether public schools' purpose in the United States is to assimilate, to instill obedience, or to promote critical thought and independence. Just remember, these debates aren't new. They've been there since the very beginning of public education. Whenever exactly you define that beginning to have happened. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great. Here's your education fun fact for the episode. Indiana has 9 of the 10 largest high school gymnasiums in America, including the largest, the Lloyd E. Scott Gymnasium in Seymour, which seats over 8,200 people. Of course, the one other state to make that list at number 7 is Texas. Bye now.